What up, what up? You're watching Weekends on the Jacobin YouTube channel. Anna Kasparian and Nando Vila with you. Nando, the show's going to be fire. You want to give them a little yes. taste? Well, we got Bronco Marchidic here, one of the most prolific writers, and he's got the he's got the good takes, you know. What's he's like the he's he's just one of these like Jacobin writers that like publishes like a hundred pieces a month, um, and they're all worth reading. So I'm excited to talk to Bronco. Um, we're going to talk about the Teamsters, the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. That's a lot going on there, um, and you're going to talk about this infrastructure bill. What do we yeah. got with that? Is it good or bad? Give me well, a preview. No, the uh, look, we don't have exact details. We don't have the language in the legislation yet. But one thing that mm. we do know is that they're going to privatize public infrastructure. That's almost a given at this point. And so we're going to do a deep dive on that and how disastrous it's going to be. So language, language. If that's the headline, then it's bad. I don't need to like look at the details of the legislation. Privatizing public infrastructure is bad. Always, it's never good, no matter what the context is, ever. So exactly, yeah. exactly. And I'm gonna. We're not just gonna say it. We're gonna show you um, because mm. these types of efforts have been um, executed in places like Europe, uh, already executed in um, various municipalities across the country. And it does not bode well for workers. Uh, it does not bode well for uh, just like the regressive taxation that's involved. Uh, so there's a lot to get into about that. And by the way, it ends up costing far more uh, to do infrastructure projects once you privatize them. So we'll talk about all of that. And uh, But before we do, I do think it's important to kind of talk about some of these uh, recent Supreme Court rulings, one of mm. which, Nando, you told me about this morning, um, because, you know, Saturday mornings just wouldn't be the same if you didn't know about the child slavery taking place <laughs> in African countries to ensure that we get our chocolate from Nestle. I mean, yeah, geez. I mean, as I'm mixing in my my coffee and cream, you know, on Saturday morning, you know, just getting ready to do the show, throwing up some child slavery talk. Hell yeah. That's what we need. Jeez. Only well, in America, let's, let's get into it. Let's get into it, because I think uh, a common misconception among Democrats regarding this extremely conservative Supreme Court is that they're going to be awful on social issues, when in reality, I actually think they're going to leave most social issues alone, but they're going to be hyper-focused on and have been hyper-focused on reversing uh, workers' rights and, more importantly, handing down these pro-corporate Supreme Court rulings. And this yeah. is certainly one of them. So I'll you set it up. You are absolutely right about that. Yeah. So uh, here's the story. Uh, the Supreme Court has reversed two different lower court rulings, and it does, in fact, spell trouble for workers, not just here in the United States, but also abroad. Um, so for the purposes of this uh, video, we'll talk specifically about one of their rulings pertaining to uh, a potential lawsuit against Nestle over essentially child trafficking and slavery that's taking place in um, Western Africa. So uh, there are six men who uh, tried to sue Nestle. Um, and the six men who sued claimed that those companies uh, aided and abetted child slavery because they knew or should have known that the farms were using enslaved children. So the two uh, companies in question here are Nestle and Cargill. Um, and just to give you a sense of how brutal and awful this is, uh, I do want to go to this first video from an older BBC report on the child slavery that takes place to 
basically do the farming for the chocolate necessary uh, for Nestle and Cargill. Let's watch. There's a quick way to identify them. If they're from Burkina Faso, they speak a different language. The adults tell them not to talk to us. But later, we find four young boys in a far corner of the village. Bonjour. Comment s'appelle-vous? I am called Wale Fatao. Unlike the locals, they recognize French. It turns out all of them work on cocoa farms. And the youngest, 12-year-old Fatao, confirms he's from an area in Burkina Faso. From? Zabri. Zabri? Okay. The adults are suspicious. Cocoa slaves could land someone in prison. It's becoming unsafe. I mean, you see how young they are. And so um, six individuals wanted to sue Nestle and Cargill, which are U.S.-based companies, uh, for their role in perpetuating this type of behavior abroad. And uh, the Supreme Court has weighed in on this uh, with Justice Clarence Thomas writing that the lawsuit can't go forward. Uh, Justice Clarence Thomas, writing for the eight to one majority, said the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit um, erred in allowing the suit on the grounds that Nestle and Cargill had allegedly made, quote, major operational decisions in the United States. Thomas said the six plaintiffs who are from the nation of Mali improperly sought to sue under the alien tort for conduct that occurred outside of the United States. But these are these are U.S.-based companies, right? And uh, the lower courts, uh, particularly the Ninth Circuit Court, um, had disagreed with the reasoning that was provided by the Supreme Court. So the Ninth Circuit Court's ruling was reversed by the Supreme Court, and they had ruled that the plaintiffs had properly claimed uh, the ATS applied in the cases because financing decisions originated in the United States. Uh, so, I mean... I agree yeah. with the Ninth Circuit Court. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's just what do you, what, what kind of, what kind of absurd logic is that? Like, you know, U.S. companies can't like execute someone on foreign soil. Like, that's illegal. Like, you know, no, no court would allow a company that was just like, oh no, we're like part of our thing is that we're just going to murder, uh, you know, someone who doesn't, you know, work for us properly. Like, our executives are ordered to, like, of course, that wouldn't be allowed to to happen. You know, that would be illegal under U.S. law, even if the crime were occurring uh, abroad. But, you know, it's just it's 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 just wild to see the court do this on an 8-1 majority. It's not even like it's not even like the libs. The, I mean, I, I think Sotomayor was the only was the only dissenting. Right. The And it's just mm-hmm. like by doing this, you're essentially giving them a free reign to do child slavery. I mean, I, I don't know how like how how anyone can look at this and just be like, hmm, well, I don't know, it's a very complex issue. And it's like, it's just not not a complex issue at all. Like, you can't, you have to, I don't know, like, you, you can't just, like, buy shit from, that is that is manufactured by by child slaves. Like, that's just not, that it's it's in any way, that the fact that that's in any way legal here in the United States is is just absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, there are many U.S.-based companies that, exploit child labor abroad in order to 
manufacture their products. I remember several years ago, there was this big story about H&M, um, one of the retailers here in the U.S. that had, or I think also in other countries, but one of the many retailers in the U.S. that was relying on child labor in places like Vietnam under honestly awful, awful working conditions um, in order to manufacture their products. And like, was anything really done about that? No. And what the Supreme Court through this ruling essentially did was say, look, there's really no legal avenue in which these exploited workers can get any justice because if their company's based in the United States, like how are you? And and the Supreme Court says, yeah, but the child trafficking and slavery is happening somewhere else. So you can't sue them. So like, what exactly are people supposed to do to get any justice? Again, these are companies based in the US. You know, the financing decisions as the Ninth Circuit Court um, ruled are made in the United States. But now, thanks to this Supreme Court ruling setting precedent, there really are no consequences. Uh, these corporations are shielded from consequences in the future, and they can just do whatever they want abroad. They can exploit as much child labor as they want. In this case, by the way, it's not just child labor. These are young children who are being like kidnapped in places like Burkina Faso and then they're being trafficked to the Ivory Coast where they do the farming um, for the cocoa beans. It's just, it's so bleak. It's just disgusting. But this is the kind of stuff we're going to expect from a pro-corporate Supreme Court. All the attention mm -hmm. has been on reproductive rights, which I get, you know, we should be concerned about the possibility of overturning Roe v. Wade. But this court, I think, is going to be more focused on handing down pro-corporate rulings that will undo any of the worker protections um, that were gained through labor movements earlier, you know, in this country's history. And there's another example of that, which we'll talk about later. Yeah, and I suspect that they, you know, the feeling I get from this court and from Roberts in general, the, the chief justice, is that he's a pretty savvy operator and he he doesn't want to do anything that is too um, – that's going to inflame too much of the discourse. Like I remember like his Obamacare ruling, which was like, you know, one of the more heated um, – Supreme Court decisions that I can remember in recent times. Like I remember like people like literally waiting out, like reporters like waiting outside the court, like waiting for the, the thing to come. Um, like Terry Morin on ABC News was like reading, like analyzing it live as the, as the, the, the paper was like literally coming out of the, out of the thing. Um, and you know, his ruling there was kind of like a savvy hedge. It wasn't like, it was unexpected. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't, he, you know, people thought it was going to be like either all for the Democrats or all for the Republicans. He kind of like, threaded the needle um and charted this kind of middle middle ground um there to like not piss off anyone too much but to not like make anyone too happy um and i think that that's a sort of microcosm for what the court's going to do in 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 the present which is like you know overturning roe v wade would cause like a you know a, an earthquake in the discourse i mm -hmm. mean like it would just be like it would be unlike anything we can imagine you know um, and so they're, they're not going to do that. They're just not going to do that. They're going to like slide things, you know, under the radar, yep. like child slavery, because they know that no one gives a shit about that. Like no one gives a shit about stuff that happens abroad, you know, and, 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 and no one gives a shit. I mean, no one in the discourse gives a shit about like anything that relates to like worker protections or anything like that. They give a shit about like yep. social issues. Um, so they're not going to yeah, touch those social issues. Right on about that. You're right on about that. Yeah. I, I mean, I think what we should be the most concerned about 
in regard to the Supreme Court is the things that we're not paying attention to, right? Yeah. So this is a case that I didn't even, I mean, the media clearly wasn't paying close attention to the to this, um, making its way up to the Supreme Court. I didn't know about it until you told me about it this morning. Um, so definitely pay attention to um, some of the corporate-related uh, cases making its way to the Supreme Court, because I would argue that those are the cases where we're going to see some pretty significant losses. Speaking of which, there's one more Supreme Court ruling that I wanted to tell you all about. So in another terrible Supreme Court ruling, unions now can't recruit workers on California farms thanks to, uh, you know, the conservatives on the court who don't think that uh, the private property of uh, the farm owners should be violated by union organizers. So the vote on this particular case was six to three with the court's three liberal members in dissent. The decision did away with a major achievement of the farm workers movement that was led by Cesar Chavez in the 1970s, which um, had argued that allowing organizers to enter workplaces was the only practical way to give farm workers who can't who are, you know, they can be nomadic, they're sometimes poorly educated, a realistic opportunity or shot to consider joining a union. So the state regulation, by the way, issued in 1975, um, and unique in the nation allows union organizers to meet with agricultural workers at work sites in the hour before and after work and during lunch breaks as for um, as many as 120 days a year. So uh, that's now been struck down. Uh, the conservative justice's reasoning was this. Uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, writing for the majority, said that the access regulation grants labor organizations a right to invade the growth property. That meant, he wrote, that it was a taking of private property without just compensation. And look, I don't look, I, I hate this ruling. But when you live in a capitalistic model that values private property over all else, this is the logical ruling. This is what you would mm -hmm. get. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I, I see what you're saying that like, it's like, you know, that it, it, it is coherent with the system in which we are living in like the i mean that was one of the things that was remarkable about cesar chavez that he was able to pull, push against you know what is the you know the the, the such a the dominant prevailing thing and, and and actually won victories and again like you know cesar chavez is one of these people who like the liberals kind of idealize in in sort of a symbolic way you know because he's like the latino martin luther king in their mind kind of thing you know um i mean obviously mm -hmm. they they don't really care about any of the of the fundamental things that he achieved um because like where is the where is the even like a sliver of coverage of this kind of thing like just nothing like nothing on on msnbc or or whatever like they this is just not the kind of thing that they would ever touch they would like cover it if like he was put on the five dollar bill or something, you know. Totally. Um, you know, like that would be like that would be like wall to wall coverage. <laughs> um, but like dismantling his entire legacy, uh, yeah. Who cares? Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Um, I think that's part of the reason why uh, so many Democratic voters are starting to either become apathetic in regard to electoral politics or even adversarial because. The empty gestures are insulting, right? And I keep giving the example of the Black Lives Matter mural in front of Trump Tower. 
How did that benefit or improve anyone's life? It was just an empty gesture. Then they turn around and they do the exact opposite of what like Black Lives Matter is is asking for. Um, So yeah, these empty gestures are ridiculous. You see it both in the media and among politicians. Um, And so... Yeah, this is this is a trend. Uh, the court has in recent years, um, as reported by The New York Times, dealt blows to public unions and limited <laughs> the ability of workers to band together to make legal action over workplace issues. At the same time, the court has been uh, protective of property rights. And look, electoral politics, as frustrating as it is, matters, right? Strategic voting matters. I know that in 2016, people were kind of dismissive of the impact of a Trump presidency on the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court can strike down any of the gains made by organized labor in this country. Like we might be able to do everything right. People might organize, you know, get lawmakers to to pass the right legislation, but the Supreme Court, considering how pro-corporate and conservative it is, can just blow all of that up. Um, so I, I don't want to be too yeah. negative or pessimistic, but this is just well, the reality of the situation. I mean, the, well, so many things. I mean, I, I encourage everyone to look at our, our in, to look up our interview with Samuel Moyne, um, who is a, uh, a scholar, an uh, expert on the court. And he talked about, you know, just how, you know, what are the potential reforms to this kind of thing? Because you're right. Like, I mean, say, imagine if you can like flip a switch and we had like a massive militant labor movement, like the court would just strike down every single thing that they, that they achieved. Um, and, it, but it, you know, you don't have to like th- this concept that the court is like this kind of, you know, the, this like law of God, you know, that they could just like, mm-hmm. you know, like impose, like, is just not the reality like the 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 president does have huge leeway in kind of basically ignoring the court you know you can disempower the court and you can pass even reforms in congress that that change the makeup of the court or you know there's there's plenty of reforms so i encourage everyone to check out the interview with samuel moyne but the other thing that drives me crazy is you're right like you know the every election cycle um the liberals kind of like are hyperventilating uh, uh, uh about the court um but once they're in power, you don't see the same sense of urgency about it. Like, it's just, yep. you know, Biden's in there and they have a slim majority in Senate. You know, they, in theory, could nominate a Supreme Court. Well, they could, obviously they could expand the court. But like, you know, Stephen Breyer is 81 years old. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if in, it's pretty likely that Mitch McConnell is not, is that the Senate is going to flip to the Republicans in 2022 at this point. I mean, it's it's not a given, but it's likely maybe above 50 percent chance or you know it's a coin flip at 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 best um if that happens there are no new supreme court justices nominated by biden it's just not it's just not going to happen you know um so there is no sense of urgency there's just nothing there's no no like once they're in power it's the same thing that we talk about with the voting rights or anything like that like they're they're hyperventilating when you know when when they're out of power but then as soon as they're in power it's just like oh well you know we just can't do anything about it. We can't do anything. We just, totally. we've been like yelling at you, hectoring you like at an insane level for years. And then once we, we do the thing and then you can't, can't do anything about it. It just, that, that Absolutely. kind of thing drives me crazy. Yeah. It's going to drive you crazy when I do my decode segment on the infrastructure bill, <laughs> because, you know, on one hand you have Democrats talk about how the Republican party poses an existential threat to the United States. And then they turn around after winning um, these elections and they try to like 
force us to buy this nonsense talking point about uh, the importance of bipartisanship. It's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> but before we get to that, uh, why don't we give a shout out to one of our partners, Verso, actually yes. our only partner. Our only partner, my only, my only partner in life. You can join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one or more books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off everything on the website, including the Verso Comrade tote bag, for as long as you are a subscriber. Each member tier is 50% off for your first three months. The Comrade tier is only $20 a month, and if you join in June, you get these four books. The Revenge of the Real, Post-Pandemic Politics by Benjamin Bratton. Clean Living Under Difficult Circumstances, Finding a Home in the Ruins of Modernism by Owen Hatherley. China in One Village, The Story of One Town and the Changing World by Liang Hong. And Comrade, An Essay on Political Belonging by Jody Dean. You heard it here, folks. Uh, Join in the Comrade level. You're going to get those books. You're going to get the Comrade book. You're going to get that sweet tote bag. Why would you not? Yeah. (laughs) All right. Uh, So, Nando, something that does not get uh, covered much in the media is um, some developments when it comes to the Teamsters. Luckily, you're going to give us a deep dive on that. So take it away. Yes. This week, the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, also known as the Teamsters Union, held their 30th annual convention. Now, the news that came out of that, you may have seen on Twitter, was that the Teamsters were prioritizing Amazon as a target for unionization, which is good. But that wasn't the most important thing that happened. Because you can't organize Amazon without a militant and democratic union. And the Teamsters took significant steps in the right direction with a series of internal reforms, as well as a major leadership fight that is shaping up in the fall. But first, we got we just, we just got to get to the celebrity guests, including... Paul Giamatti. Hello, this is Paul Giamatti speaking, filming himself, and you would think I would know how to do this at this point, use a camera. Amazing. Uh, Anyway, this is Paul Giamatti sending my greetings, my congratulations, my love and admiration to the International Brotherhood of Teamsters Union on the occasion of your 30th international convention. Amazing. 1.4 million members strong. Truly amazing. And I am privileged to work with about 25 of you on the set of the show I do. And some of you have to deal with me every day, which is an extraordinary accomplishment in and of itself. And I thank you, every one of you. I'm sorry, but that's just like the that's like the best thing I've ever seen. I mean, you just got you got to love that. I'm Paul Giamatti thanking the Teamsters. Um, So but, you know, that wasn't the only the only big star that showed up. Uh, We got the biggest star in America and likely the next president of the United States. The Rock showed up. Hey, Teamsters, Dwayne Johnson here. You know, this was a year like no other. (laughs) Yeah, we're not going to play the whole thing. But of course. Uh, it wouldn't be a Teamsters event without Danny DeVito making an appearance. Hi, everybody. This is Danny DeVito, and I want to congratulate the Teamsters Union and its 1.4 million members on their 30th international convention. You just love, I love that angle. Like, oh, yeah. You know, Danny DeVito directed uh, a movie about Jimmy Hoffa called Hoffa, starring Jack Nicholson. You should go check it out. Now, of course, the Teamsters convention 
would not be complete without a selfie video from the selfie video king, Will Smith. Yo, what's up? This is Will Smith. Hey, I want to say congratulations to the Teamsters Union and to your 1.4 million members. Congratulations on your 30th international convention. You know, I, I remember my first 30th uh, international <laughs> convention. It seemed like only yesterday. But, uh, but that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> I mean, honestly... We were joking uh, in the pre-production meeting. Uh, it doesn't seem like Will Smith actually knows what a teamster is. Like, I mean, it's kind of like a blink twice, Will, if you're under duress or if you have a gun pointed at your head or something. Now, obviously, a few celebrity cameos, cameos is good for morale. But the convention was also visited by a few members of the Biden administration, including Labor Secretary Marty Walsh and Transportation Secretary Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Hello, I'm Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg. I want to recognize General Secretary Treasurer Ken Hall, the General Executive Board, and all the delegates in attendance. General President James Hoffa, congratulations on a legacy of service. Your leadership has made and continues to make life better for millions of Teamsters and their families, and really for working people everywhere. I have a simple message for the Teamsters right now. Thank you. When we needed essential services and supply chains to keep our country running, when we needed to get COVID vaccines for manufacturers into arms, we turned to the Teamsters. Our transportation system is a backbone of our economy, and Teamsters play a central role in that transportation system. Now, I never thought I would say this, but Mayor Pete is right. The transportation system is the backbone of the economy, and Teamsters play a central role in that. And he may or may not fully appreciate what that means, but it's also a key reason why the upcoming Teamsters election matters so much. Now, the current leader of the Teamsters is James Hoffa. No, not that Hoffa. His son, James P. Hoffa. Now, Hoffa has been a pretty conciliatory union leader. His administration has not been known for any sort of real militancy when it comes to dealing with employers. Obviously, his last name looms large within the Teamster lore. But as Paul Giamatti points out, Hoffa is retiring this year. And I also offer congratulations to Jim Hoffa, the retiring president of the union. After 23 years of service, I'm told, enjoy your retirement, sir. I am told. Uh, now, the battle to replace Hoffa as the leader of the Teamsters has been heating up. On the one side, you have the Hoffa continuity ticket, led by a couple of guys named Steve Varma and Ron Herrera. But the real action is on the other side, with the ticket that has been in opposition to Hoffa's leadership for the last few years. That is led by two guys named Sean O'Brien and Fred Zuckerman, who previously ran against Hoffa in 2016 and lost by just 6,000 votes, which is pretty close in a union of 1.4 million members. Now, the O'Brien and Zuckerman ticket, better known as Oz, are endorsed by something called Teamsters for a Democratic Union, or TDU, which for decades has been organizing within the Teamsters against a leadership that they see as sclerotic and corrupt. One of the major flashpoints between the rank and file and the leadership was a contract negotiated by the leadership with UPS in 2018. The new, agree the new agreement included a series of givebacks, meaning a reduction of benefits that were previously won. And TDU organized to get the Teamsters to vote against the New Deal, which they did when 54% of the Teamsters voted no. But the leadership simply reversed the decision, 
using an obscure loophole called the two-thirds rule that allowed them to simply go against the majority of their members' wishes. Well, at this week's convention, TDU was able to end the so-called two-thirds rule, and it was seen as a major victory to democratize the union. But that wasn't the only thing they won. They also got a constitutional amendment that requires rank-and-file members on all contract negotiating committees, both local and national, and they also got improved strike benefits. They will now be paid from day one of a strike. Now, TDU has fought for decades to end the two-thirds rule, which Hoffa and his officers used to force bad contracts on workers. Here is Fred Zuckerman, the Z in the Oz ticket, arguing in favor of striking down the rules Hoffa helped put in place. I call on Fred Zuckerman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. My name is Fred Zuckerman, a proud Oz Teamsters United delegate from Teamsters Local Union 89. I speak in favor of the amendment. Before it was popular, I opposed the two-thirds rule and the implementation of supplements and riders because my members had felt the brunt of this bad policy. I proposed amendments to the Constitution in 2016 to keep cowards from implementing contracts on our members. Now it seems everyone is jumping on the bandwagon because of the members' outrage. In successive contract negotiations, Local 89 UPS members have had their contracts rejected and rammed down their throats. In 2013, they had their supplement implemented on them, and in 2018, they had the National Master Contract implemented on them. We had significant issues being negotiated prior to the IBT imposing our supplement on us. Issues such as unpaid time, subcontracting, safety, health insurance, and full-time jobs. All that was taken away from our members when the IDT undermined our negotiations and implemented the supplement. To this day, because of the 2013 and 2018 contracts were implemented on them, Worldport members who have felt betrayed by the IBT have elected delegates and alternates who I am with today to send a clear message to the cowards who implemented the contracts on us that we will never again, tolerate those types of actions. No more will a contract be implemented, and I will guarantee that in 2023, the IBT will stand with the members in negotiations instead of working against them. No longer will members suffer information brownouts and blackouts because rank-and-file members will now be allowed on every bargaining On Monday... I was proud to make the motion to approve the language in this committee. I'm happy members of this administration had a late-life conversion on the two-thirds rule. But make no mistake. Time is up. They came to this, res- they right. came to this revelation kicking and screaming. Still, the fact is we reached consensus agreement. Regardless of the path... They finally listened to the members and we read the Constitution of this detrimental policy. I urge a vote in favor of this amendment. Okay, I'll call on Ron Herrera. That was was pretty awkward there toward the end. I mean, he basically uh, called Hoffa a coward to his face. Now, Democratic unions are important because Democratic unions forge greater solidarity, which is what enables the union to fight against bigger, badder companies, rebuilding trust within memberships so they can actually pursue harder fights against UPS, Amazon, etc. 
Having rank and file members on all bargaining committees and improved strike benefits are big game changers for the union, especially in upcoming anticipated contract fights. Now, we covered the Teamsters strike at Hunts Point Market in New York City. And while that was victory, that was just a local strike. The last time the Teamsters went on a national strike was in 1997 against UPS. The chairman of the delivery giant indicated UPS may be willing to compromise. In Washington, D.C., the talks went on late into this evening. Striking Teamsters met with company officials. The discussions are still being billed as informal talks rather than formal bargaining. And UPS could soon have another strike to deal with. Its pilots are talking about walking out. They've been working without a contract since 1995. Those contract talks are expected to resume this fall. So what is it like to be on that UPS picket line? Teamsters have walked the picket line day and night for the last 11 days. So how are their spirits holding up as the strike drags on? News Channel 7's Cordell Whitlock is at the UPS picket line in Spartanburg tonight. So Cordell, are the Teamsters prepared to stick with it? They certainly are, Tom, although things are quiet inside the UPS distribution center. As you can see to my right, members of Teamsters Local 28 are marching strong. And they say they will continue to march until this strike is settled. How about a game of horseshoes or some hoops to pass the time? Spartanburg Teamsters walk the picket lines like everyone else, but man does not live on picketing alone. It's our mind off things, and we can kind of relax, and everybody needs an outlet, and that's kind of an outlet for us. Since the picket lines are a new home for Teamsters, they are bringing loved ones along for support. Family is a necessity when the chips are down and uncertainty replaces stability. We have families coming and, and, and little children carrying picket signs. We have them coming with their dogs, uh, their girlfriends, their boyfriends. And we're um, passionate about this. We want the issue settled and we want to come back to work. All these folks say they can do is hope talks are leaning toward a settlement. But for now, these Teamsters are making the best of it talking with each other, sharing the pain of anxiety, developing bonds with co-workers they never knew. You know, you just learn that they're just like you. And that's what a union's all about, is people with common goals and, and things. And we just realized we're all struggling right now because we're not working. We're all worried. We're all scared. And uh, we're bringing all that together. And that's, and that's the best thing about it. I miss the 90s. Gotta love that style. Now, that strike lasted 16 days, and it cost UPS hundreds of millions of dollars, and in the end, was a huge victory for the Teamsters. But that was 1997, a long time ago, and two years before Hoffa took power. Since then, the Teamsters' leadership have not gone on strike. Now, having a strong fighting Teamsters is key for the reason that Mayor Pete said— Transportation is the backbone of the economy, and for socialists, we understand that to take on real power in society means taking on the most powerful economic entities where it hurts them the most. Now, in a recent essay in Jacobin titled Why Workers Don't Revolt, which I encouraged everyone to read, Sam Gindin writes that, quote, The complex reality is that though unions emerge out of the working class, they are not class, but particularist organizations representing specific groups of workers that happen to find themselves in the same workplace. During the heady post-war decades, this was far less of a problem. Workers could make gains on their own that inspired gains elsewhere. But that era, largely, largely because of its success and capital's reaction, 
is long over. It's not that capital has escaped its contradictions. The very tactics capital used to lower costs have produced openings for greater worker disruption of supply chains and distribution networks, and healthcare and education workers now represent the kind of strategic power that industrial workers had in the 1930s. But these are only potential openings. Taking advantage of this demands a radical shift, a transformation in unions to class perspectives. That is not only looking for allies among other workers, but addressing other dimensions of workers' lives and engaging in the deepest development of unions' own members as conditional on building the class. He writes that one of the structural disadvantages that workers have in their fights with capital is that under capitalism, competition is the name of the game. Companies have to compete with each other. But that means that workers often have to compete with each other as well. He writes, quote, that the most effective capitalists survive and take over the capital of the weaker ones strengthens capitalists as a class. For workers, competition fragments the class and undermines their most important weapon, class solidarity, weakening their potential class power. The only way to overcome this is through class solidarity. And the only way to build that kind of class solidarity is through politics. In the heyday of the labor movement, the unions were filled with socialists and communists who were then purged after World War II. This made individual unions much more focused on themselves than on building class power that could help all workers. We need to get that back. And a more militant and democratic Teamsters union would be a great step in the right direction. So, folks, set your calendars for November because that leadership election is going to be absolutely crucial. Man, that video of Hoffa was so incredibly disrespectful. Like, walking away, I mean... Just didn't want to face the music, you know? Like, yeah. I mean, I I don't know. I I wouldn't want, like, to just, like, go on some, like, thing and then just have someone yell at me for, for, you know? So I I don't blame him in that sense. But, yeah, that was pretty remarkable, uh, just seeing Zuckerman uh, just telling him to his face i mean i don't know it's just uh i always you know i'm like very conflict averse in general by nature like i wouldn't like yeah. you know step up to someone's face i mean you're you're different you know i've seen you without, a, without <laughs> with, with alex jones uh but uh you know if that happened if i had the alex jones thing happen to me i'd probably be like i like i'd be like laughing at him or whatever but i wouldn't like uh you know um Confront. get in his face yeah um so yeah i always find those kind of things uh very um, kind of bracing to watch, but yeah. <laughs> what I love about your segment, though, is it, it shows you the incredible gains that can be accomplished through, yeah, through class solidarity, right? Um, and I also like that you address through just covering this topic, um, the issues that arise through uh, the leadership in unions. Because I remember when, um, you know, when I saw that IATSE, um, which is one of these unions, like decided to endorse like corporate Democrats in the state of California and like these congressional races, I'm like, yeah, but these are these are Democrats who literally have votes on their record that goes against labor, like mm-hmm. anti-worker votes. Like, how can you endorse them? That, that, that makes no sense. And it's because, um, you know, oftentimes the endorsements aren't based on a vote from like rank and file union members. It's just the leadership making the decision this the decision unilaterally yeah i mean i remember i mean i'll never forget the the sort of union revolt in um in nevada uh during the prime the last primary where um mm. the union leadership in in nevada 
um, basically censored Bernie, uh, you know, saying that his Medicare for all would be a disaster for for unions and things like that, and that it urged their members to to not vote for him, and then they all revolted and voted for him anyway. But you're right. I mean, this is like this is not like particular to any specific unions. It's a very it's a structural challenge that unions have been facing for since the 1800s, literally. Um, that it's just. Um, in under capitalism, it's 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 just very difficult to maintain that kind of democratic militant um, union for 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 a long time. I mean, it's you think of like, you know, someone like Andrew Cuomo like enjoys the unquestioned support from uh, the labor unions in in New York, and you know, labor unions in New York are very powerful, um, and you know, that's a huge source of his power. Um, but this isn't mm-hmm. this isn't even particularly. Um, uh, true just for the United States. I mean, it happens uh, all over the world. So it's something that is worth looking at and covering. And, um, you know, I think thinking about a lot because, you know, we, we need them. Like we, we need, we, that's the only way, like, you know, I, I don't know, like thinking about like mansion and cinema and these people and like how mad we get at them all the time, which we should, we should get mad at them all the time. They deserve, they deserve every bit of hate, but like we can't, do much about it um, unless yep. we cha- channel that anger through something, through some form of collective power, and that collective power only comes from labor unions. So it's like the, the only choice we have. Um, so thinking about them um, is 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 just it's just crucially important if we want any sort of change at all. Like change has never happened anywhere. Uh, positive change, that is. Ne- negative change has happened a lot, but no no positive change has ever happened without. Um, collective worker power and through through labor unions it just it just doesn't happen um and if people are curious about that um 1997 uh teamster strike actually michael brooks did a whole illicit history on it um i remember um which is worth uh checking out as part of his illicit history uh series he did an episode on on the on that teamster strike um but yeah i mean it's it's uh it's gonna be interesting i mean uh shout out to producer kale who's very plugged in and connected um, with the Teamster Union. Producer Kale, come on, because he produced a huge chunk of that segment. I can't claim uh, much of the credit, uh, only part part of the credit. Where is he? Come Super on, Kale. Super Producer get, Kale. Get out here. There you go. Aw, aw. Yeah. By I, the way, Kale will be joining us in the future, um, or near future, to do a Super Chat. So send us your Super Chat questions. Don't forget about that. Yes, ahead, that's right. No, I, I have two loves in life, and it's Medicare for All and the Teamsters. Um, well, <laughs> And two thousand one of Space no. Odyssey. And two thousand one. Exactly. Okay. All right, exactly. All right, all right. All right let's, no, we're not doing that now. We're not doing that. Okay. All right. <laughs> I love it. All right. Well, um, I don't want to be too late for our interview, so let me get started yeah. with my decode. Um, and uh let's talk about Basically, like another consequence of not having um organized labor. Uh we're not getting many wins on this infrastructure bill. So It's becoming increasingly clear that President Joe Biden's infrastructure proposal, the same bill that led to comical comparisons to Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal, is actually rapidly devolving into a Trojan horse for privatization and the transfer of more wealth from American workers to corporate executives. Biden reached a deal with, uh, you know, a, a vague infrastructure deal with a group of bipartisan senators following a failed round of negotiations with a separate group of GOP lawmakers. The president's subsequent press conference announcing the deal was brief and really void of any detail. And to answer your direct question, we have a deal. And uh, I think it's really important 
we've all agreed that uh, none of us got what we all that we wanted. I clearly didn't get all I wanted. They gave more than I think maybe they were inclined to give in the first place. But this reminds me of the days we used to get an awful lot done up in the United States Congress. We actually worked with them. We had bipartisan deals. Bipartisan deals mean compromise. Now, based on the recent uh, cheery headlines celebrating that the president had miraculously reached a deal in the spirit of bipartisanship, one might think that the era of neoliberal austerity and gridlock in Congress is coming to an end. But in reality, things are actually shaping up to get a lot worse. The bill has now been slimmed down to a pathetic $570 billion in new spending, and it will redirect uh, unused state and local coronavirus relief funds for a total budget of $1.2 trillion over the next eight years. Um, as the New York Times reports, it would include some existing infrastructure programs, but also provide, as I mentioned, $579 billion in new money over eight years to patch cracking highways, rebuild crumbling bridges, uh, speed rail traffic, and more equitably uh, spread high-speed internet access. So uh, basically, this bipartisan deal, although we haven't seen the language of it yet, is exactly what GOP lawmakers in the Senate wanted. They did not want any of the social programs like child care uh, funding or elder care funding, education funding. They, they don't want any of that stuff. And so they apparently succeeded in getting that cut out. And... Um, Obviously, this $1.2 trillion figure, which only provides $579 billion in new funding, is far less than the $2.25 trillion that Biden had called for in his initial plan. Now, um, look, obviously, Republicans are claiming that they're concerned about the deficit. I would argue that they don't care about the deficit at all. They certainly didn't care about it when they uh, cut government revenue to the tune of $2 trillion by passing Trump's 2017 tax cuts for the rich. Now, um, the positive parts of Biden's infrastructure bill that have now been cut out of this bipartisan agreement um, is apparently going to be passed in the future through a separate bill. Um, And so Biden very briefly touches on that in this next clip. Republicans and this group did not want to go along with any of my family plan issues, the child care tax credits, the human infrastructure that I talk about. And uh, that we'll see what happens in a reconciliation bill in the budget process. If that, uh, if we get some compromise there, and if we can't, see if I can attract all the Democrats to a position. I mean, I'm skeptical of that. I think anyone who's been paying attention to how the Democratic Party operates should also be skeptical. And um, maybe when Nando rejoins me, we can talk about, uh, you know, what his predictions are in regard to the possibility of a separate bill with all of these great social programs um, passing through reconciliation, which would only require a simple majority in the Senate. I mean, that would mean that you would still need to convince Corporate Democrats, conservative Democrats, whatever you want to label them as, people like Senator Joe Manchin, Kirsten Gillibrand, uh, not Kirsten Gillibrand, uh, Kirsten Sinema, 
um, Mark Warner, you know, some of these corporate Democrats, you'd have to convince them to vote in favor of all the things that are actually very unpopular among corporate lawmakers, both on the left and the right. Now, with that said, though, uh, since Republican lawmakers refuse to support any new tax increases for the rich or their corporate buddies, both parties are actually now considering finding the money, the revenue to pay for these infrastructure projects through privatization. And what they did is they released a list of possible pay-fors. And among that list, you'll see something known as asset recycling. So that is $100 billion in public infrastructure that could be sold off to uh, private capital because lawmakers don't want to raise taxes on the rich. According to Bloomberg, asset recycling, which is said to have been first introduced in Australia, allows the government to sell and lease infrastructure such as roads, airports, and utilities to private companies and use the profits to develop new infrastructure without incurring new debt. Look, this effort did not play out well in Australia. In fact, Two years after they implemented um, asset recycling, or P3, as it's oftentimes called, um, it was ended. The project ended in 2016 because of how horrific it was. Uh, an Australian... An Australian Senate committee said it was, quote, concerned about the possibility that incentives under the asset recycling initiative may encourage privatization without effective public consultation and communication strategies and without appropriate consideration or analysis of future costs. And oftentimes when we privatize public infrastructure, uh, people are told that it's actually going to be far more cost effective, but The data does not bear that out. And I will get to that later with some evidence, with some receipts uh, to make my case. It turned out, by the way, that the uh, government was just in Australia, was just privatizing public infrastructure and then doing nothing with the money, the private capital that they received through the sale of the public infrastructure. And so a year out, in some cases, reporters would reach out to government officials and ask them, Cool. I mean, the whole point of privatizing infrastructure was that you guys would then gain the revenue necessary to direct that funding to other infrastructure projects. What are you guys spending the money on? And uh, Australian lawmakers were like, "Uh, we haven't really thought about that much. So uh, they did end that program two years later. There were a host of other issues that we're likely to experience through the privatization of uh, various parts of our public infrastructure. Now, Scott Lundlum, who is a Green Party senator from Western Australia, protested that privatization bill before it went into effect. His statements are foreshadowing of uh, are a foreshadowing of what the um, American public can expect should the Biden administration go forward with $100 billion in infrastructure privatization. Watch. This bill, to put it as plainly as I can, is about bribing state and territory governments to sell off public assets in order to obtain Commonwealth funding. So we will be urging Labor to join with the Greens and vote the bill down, uh, which would, um, among other things, create a slush fund for toll roads at the expense of investment in public transport. Oh, yeah, toll roads. Now it's time to talk about the very specific consequences that 
average Americans are going to face as the federal government sells off public infrastructure. There are several issues with asset recycling, and I want to be clear, asset recycling, public-private partnership, P3, it's all the same thing. So I might use them interchangeably, but understand it's the same uh, result, essentially taking public infrastructure and privatizing it. Now, the first thing I want to focus on is the redistribution of wealth, a trend that we've been experiencing in the United States for decades now. And it's the redistribution of wealth from the very bottom to the very top. That is what we're going to experience um, under this privatization effort. And think about it. The only reason private capital would be invested in these types of public infrastructure projects is if they viewed it If these uh, private companies viewed it as a lucrative investment, remember, they're doing this because they want a return on their investment. So maximize gains, minimize losses. And as David Dayen wrote in The American Prospect, there are only two ways for these companies to reduce ownership and operation costs below what the public sector would spend while still being profitable They can cut back either on safety or labor or maintenance, or they can extract a lot of profit from users of the infrastructure. Think toll roads. In fact, to help us think about toll roads, let's see how Americans feel about them in parts of the country that have already implemented this so-called public-private partnership model. Virginia is a big believer in public-private partnerships and points to successes like the express lanes here along the Beltway, where a driver can choose to pay a toll to get around congestion. They say it's been a big success, but those successes have come with some costly mistakes. Every time you get into your car, it's like ka-ching, ka-ching. Totally. Linda Dyer's daily commute is taking a toll. Whenever she leaves home, she's paying to use tunnels that used to be free. Now she's thinking about moving elsewhere. We're spending $1,200 a year in tolls. Yeah, and my biggest concern is it going to affect how easy it is for me to sell my house. Virginia agreed to a 58-year deal with a private company to modernize and expand the tunnels linking Portsmouth and Norfolk, two military towns separated by the Elizabeth River. The tolls to cross can run a driver 525 each way. Do you just get mad when you're driving through that (laughs) tunnel? Yes, I do. She gets mad, and I don't blame her. I mean, when you think about it, you're going to privatize these highways, these roads, these bridges, and the private companies operating them are going to try to find a way to maximize their profit through individuals using the infrastructure. So the toll roads really do get out of control. In fact, Virginia should have learned from the failures of a similar uh, public-private partnership infrastructure project that was done in the 1990s. The first modern public-private partnership was Denver's Highway E-470, opened in 1991 by eight counties and a consortium of builders and financiers without a cent of public funding. It was innovative, one of the first large toll highways to go completely cashless. It's also one of the priciest roads in America, costing drivers as much as 39 cents per mile. I mean, it's it's the same as taking a taxi uh, to and from work every day. Think about how much of a regressive tax that really ends up being. And speaking of regressive taxation, when Biden initially proposed his infrastructure plan, he claimed that it would be funded by um, or the financial burden would be um, carried by wealthy people, individuals making more than $400,000 a year. And he also proposed to increase the corporate tax from 21% to 28%. 
even though it was 35% before the Trump tax cuts for the rich went into effect. He claimed and still claims that he rejects the regressive taxation options that have been um, floated by Republican lawmakers, things like a gas tax, for instance, or um, a highway tax. He's like, no, 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 we're going to reject that. We're not in favor of that. We want to make sure that working Americans, average Americans, uh, don't bear the financial burden of these infrastructure projects. But in reality, in a very roundabout way, if Biden agrees to privatizing public infrastructure, those regressive taxes will be implemented anyway. But the it's not a regressive tax that provides revenue to the federal government. It's a regressive tax that provides revenue specifically to private corporations, which is why this is just another scheme to redistribute wealth, whatever's left of it, from the bottom to the very top in this country. It is a complete disastrous idea. And the fact that it's even being considered by Democrats gives you a sense of just how similar uh, both parties are when it comes to appeasing their corporate over overlords. Now, um, I also want to talk about the other talking point that you're likely to hear from proponents of this public-private partnership or asset recycling. Now, in order to get the public on board, oftentimes what you'll hear from these private corporations or proponents of these programs is that it's an efficient way to build infrastructure um, and to cut costs associated with building this infrastructure. But the data does not, in fact, bear that out. There's actually been an abundance of data indicating that that talking point has been disproven. In fact, a 2018 UN report found that while privatization's proponents insist that it saves money, enhances efficiency, and improves services, the real-world evidence very often challenges or contradicts these claims. In terms of costs, private finance is more expensive than public finance, and public-private partnerships can also incur high design, management, and transactional costs due to their complexity and the need for external advice. Listen, we see that here in California, where voters overwhelmingly agreed to raise their own taxes in order to provide the funding for, uh, you know, these supposedly affordable housing developments. What ended up happening is these developers who were contracted by local lawmakers, what they did was essentially just inflate the cost, the building costs for these um, affordable uh, housing units. It's just the same thing happens, not just here in the United States, but across the world where these public-private partnerships uh, take place. Also, um, it's important to look at specific examples of how these infrastructure projects can end up costing a lot more than they need to. We have so many case studies to, to show, including what you're about to watch in this video. Private dollars are not a substitute for public dollars. And we're not going to be able to, to solve all our issues uh, simply by having public-private partnerships uh, be the only answer. That's because these deals often end badly for the public. In Texas, the company that built a toll road from Dallas to Austin went bankrupt in less than a decade before it could repay millions in federal loans. And in Chicago, a 75-year Morgan Stanley-led lease on all of the city's parking meters has cost the city millions. In Virginia, you don't have to go far to find a project that bombed. In 2011, a company called Elizabeth River Crossings won a contract to upgrade tunnels connecting the naval town of Norfolk 
with the working-class city of Portsmouth. The company makes its profit from tolls, which started small, but now reach as high as $11. Good afternoon, fellow Rotarians and guests. It's discouraged people from using the tunnels, and Portsmouth locals say it's hurting the city. Portsmouth is a commuter city for workers who come to us. These tolls of, you know, $800, $900 a year are, have an impact on them. So it has uh, a domino effect on communities, uh, especially when you have uh, roads that are just far too expensive for individuals to use. And honestly, while researching this story, there were just too many examples um, of how these public-private partnerships uh, were wasteful, um, how these so-called efficient private companies actually ended up not being efficient at all and went bankrupt. And the privatization of public infrastructure not only ends up costing more to complete the project itself due to inflated costs, but sometimes the tolls, these toll roads end up being so financially burdensome for workers that the government has to step in and subsidize the tolls as well. Many in this working-class community couldn't afford their commute, forcing the state to pony up nearly $300 million extra dollars to buy down the tolls. Meaning that we could have done that project ourselves. So that project just was a, a loser. Great transportation project that needed to be done. The infrastructure absolutely was needed. The way we financed it was not such a great deal for the Commonwealth of Virginia. So... How is that efficient? I mean, how is it efficient to essentially sell off public infrastructure to private companies who then obviously mismanage the project, in this case, uh, implement insanely expensive tolls to the point where the local officials have to get involved and provide more resources uh, to subsidize the tolls so people in the community could actually afford to use the roads. I mean, this is the direction that we're headed in with this infrastructure bill, which, again, going back to all of these ridiculous headlines comparing Biden to FDR. I mean, yes, did FDR in some... Um, it, it, through the New Deal, offer opportunities for private companies to join forces um, with uh, with the public in order to execute some infrastructure projects? Yes. But this essentially puts it on steroids because it's just taking public infrastructure and privatizing it, allowing these private companies to do with it what they will. Since they have a profit motive, they're not actually going to invest the resources necessary to improve the infrastructure. There's also a likelihood, by the way, that as soon as they obtain all this uh, infrastructure, they're going to have clearly a vested interest to lobby Congress to deregulate um, various codes and uh, building regulations. That's another thing to be concerned about. And we've seen similar things happen with other privatization models, like for-profit prisons, for instance. How did that turn out for us? Now, the final thing I want to mention is the fact that Biden, through being open to this, is walking back one of his main talking points, one of his most important selling points in getting the public to support this infrastructure bill. The infrastructure bill is not titled Biden's infrastructure bill. It's titled the American Jobs Plan, because the whole point here was not just to improve infrastructure, but to create well-paying unionized jobs. But if you sell off public infrastructure to private companies, which have a profit motive, which is why they're investing their private capital into these projects, 
You think that they're going to hire well-paid unionized labor to do the work? Of course not. And that's the other thing that Biden has walked his promise, uh, walked back his promise on. And it's infuriating. It's frustrating uh, because it started off as a decent infrastructure bill. Now we've gotten everything important taken out of it, which allegedly will be um, part of a reconciliation bill, a separate bill. And then on top of it, instead of raising taxes on the rich, we're now having a discussion about selling off our public goods. It's disgusting. It's wrong. And it's something that I want to talk to Nando about. So Nando. Yeah, I mean, the how quickly reality just kind of slaps you in the face, right? I mean, there was there was like, you know, I wouldn't say like hope uh, in the early days of the Biden administration. I mean, his foreign policy was always um, awful, but there was like this sense that maybe a lot of the orthodoxies of the Democratic Party had begun to wither away, that maybe the effect of, you know, the Sanders phenomenon um, had had some some effect and and that, you know, the failures of Obama had been sort of um, understood by some Democrats, even if they were even on some cynical level. But like just how quickly as soon as as soon as the rubber hits the road, it it just it just snaps back into place. Um, you know, this this like awful idea of like public private partnerships. I mean, that that word is just should be banned forever. I mean, the, the basic principle is like, well, yeah, yeah, good. Okay, let me just say something about that, because yeah. what I found super fascinating through researching this was that public private partnership was the dominant way of describing or naming what this is. And then the government and these corporations realized how unpopular this is because we've already implemented it to some degree in the U.S. and people hate it. So then they switched it to P3 and people aren't stupid. They caught on and now they refer to it as asset recycling, which, by the way, I think asset recycling, even though it's the same thing, it sounds worse. <laughs> like yeah. It just sounds worse. But it- yeah. I mean, the, the way for people to understand this as like simply as possible is if it's if it's private then there's profit someone has to make money off of it you know like that's that's mm-hmm. the point so and if there's profit that's the that's the most important thing you know like when you're when you're introducing the profit motive the profit motive trumps every single other consideration always forever if it's public you know there's examples of corruption yes and some public officials get rich off of like corrupt uh public deals and whatever but if it's public the point is not to make money you know the point of of the whole thing is not for someone to make money it is to provide a public benefit you know are there ways better and worse ways to do that yes but the principle remains private means that they have to trump that they have to do make profit above all other considerations all like literally like any other public health you know the the actual point of like an infrastructure of moving things around um you know you see this a lot in the airline industry you see it in any sort of public thing that should be a public utility that is privatized um so like just always be on the lookout for that like it's just it's it's just a straight giveaway to um to 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 people, to private interests who need to make money. It's just, that's that's the only way yeah. to think about it. And this idea that they're going to, you know, pass like the second thing on budget. I mean, uh, we're just going to, we'll just call up the Senate parliamentarian. Um, and uh, <laughs> Totally. And uh, Yeah, you know. I mean, they took out everything that like people like Manchin were protesting. 
And they say they're going to pass it through a reconciliation bill, but they need to get Manchin and Democratic lawmakers like him on board. And they're not on board. Um, so it's just it's they're, they're not going to pass that. Things yeah. are looking really bad for the infrastructure yeah. bill. There's no question. And um, one other thing I want to add before we bring on our guest is these asset recycling deals can be done in different ways. But the way that they're planning on implementing this is they don't just give the federal government capital and then be done with it. No, they do it in the form of a loan with interest. And so they do it so they can lease the public property and and manage it. And so while the government is paying them back on this loan, right, they're using the public infrastructure as if it's their private property and, you know, implementing tolls, doing what they can to basically extract money from it, right? And so that's the other thing. Like, it's just, it's such a bad deal all around for ordinary Americans, for the government. Um, but hey, 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 we can't raise taxes on the rich. That would just, you know, that would be awful. Just absolutely awful yeah. to do that. Anyway, well, um, yeah. let no, no. go ahead. Let's bring, let's bring on the guest because I think he, he, he might have something to say about all of this. Yes. Um, joining us now is... A man who I've read a lot of work from, but I'm going to probably mispronounce your name, and I apologize. So joining us now is Bron- uh, Bronco Marchetich. Uh, he is a writer for Jacobin and author of Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden. <laughs> um, Bronco, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That was actually a really good effort with my name, so pat yourself on the back. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I actually really enjoyed your book and uh, first found out about it after you did a lengthy interview with Michael Brooks. Um, So you're kind of an expert on Joe Biden. You're the perfect guest to help us um, basically unpack what the infrastructure bill has turned into. So first, let me get your thoughts on that. What are your thoughts on this um, bipartisan agreement in the Senate uh, regarding Biden's infrastructure bill? I mean, it it sounds like you guys have really covered most of it. It's it's not a good deal, uh, and it does follow this this pattern in Biden's career. We kind of prizes getting a bipartisan deal on something, you know, just for its own sake to be able to say, "Look, the system works. Look, I, I reached across the aisle and I managed to get someone from the other party to sign on to this." Instead of actually uh, trying to pass something that that is, uh, makes sense, is good policy, or you know, is actually necessary. Um, so, you know, I mean, I, I think we're seeing that that's, that's the, the classic kind of Bidenism in action here. Uh, there's been quite a bit of reporting, uh, over the last, you know, two, three months, uh, that basically whereas you know, say us three perhaps see the Democrats best chances of, of maintaining the house and the Senate as, as kind of, uh, providing material benefits to people, making their lives better in really tangible, concrete ways, and basically getting people excited enough to go, oh, well, you know, it was actually, it was worth it, all that canvassing and all that door knocking, all that voting we did, all that line standing we did uh, to get these people in power. Let's do it again. You know, that, that's sort of the, you know, let's say the, the, the left wing progressive theory of change. Biden uh, sees uh, his theory of, of, of change, his, his uh, theory of how he's going to keep uh, majorities in the Senate and in the House as you know, if he can show that the system works, that compromise is still possible, which, frankly, to me, is completely diluted. But I, I guess you know that that is he he came up in a very different time. His 
it, though he has kind of shifted on certain things like budget deficits and that kind of thing, clearly his head is still kind of in that space in the 1970s and 1980s that he, that he came up with. Um, I mean, uh, in terms of the actual details of the, of the infrastructure bill, I mean, you guys really covered it pretty well. The, the asset recycling is, is terrible. It doesn't even make sense from a economic standpoint. The whole point of this bill is that, that it's going to pump spending into the economy and it's going to get people jobs, it's going to get people money into their pockets, and then they'll spend that money uh, on other parts of the economy. You know, they'll, they'll be able to go to restaurants, go go to you know movies, they'll be able to buy consumer products, all that stuff, and that's meant to drive the economy. Okay, great. But, I mean, if you are privatizing uh, uh, public infrastructure uh, and, and that results in, in toll roads, I mean, what you're getting instead is, is just a, a further system of rent-seeking where these companies just – ramp up these uh these these tolls and, and other fees other user fees people instead of spending their money uh on on actual productive parts of the economy they just spend it to put it into the pockets of, of finance and private companies which of course then recycle that money into you know for example buying up uh foreclosed houses so they can become um the, the, the biggest landlords in the country uh and, and a whole host of other things mm-hmm. uh taking it away from the actual productive part of the economy and, and putting it into this kind of just, this rent-seeking finance bubble, basically. Uh, the exact opposite of what this entire thing is meant to do, the entire point of these, these big trillion-dollar, uh, multiples of trillion-dollar stimuluses. Um, and the other aspect, I, you know, I, I, uh, apologies, I only uh, signed on towards the end of, of the segment, so I don't know if you cover this. But uh, the other part of this is that in the deal, um, they, they've talked about, you know, it's only about, I think, $579 billion of new spending. Mm-hmm. Um, the rest of it is they're going to recycle it through, through uh, finding other ways. So they're going to, you know, try and claw it back through the IRS uh, or they're going to, um, so they've <laughs> calculated this kind of magical, you know, uh, economic growth that's going to happen. And so that'll pay for it. That, that's their calculation. Um, and one of the other big ones is that they're going to uh, draw on unused unemployment insurance. Mm. Um, and so, you know, uh, 26 states, I believe, cut off the uh, expanded unemployment insurance early because there was that fear mongering around uh, it, it is the fact that people are getting paid a, a, a minimal amount finally to actually make, uh, you know, to have a life. Uh, is that stopping them from taking these low-wage jobs without benefits and, and, and that are incredibly dangerous? Um, clearly, yeah, that must be it, so we're going to cut that. And and so uh, what they're going to do, what they're talking about doing, is repurposing that money and then uh, using that to pay for some of this, uh, you know, <laughs> partly a stealth privatization scheme, uh, which is, you know, I mean, that's, a, that's an injustice on a whole other level. I mean, uh, there was actually a report just by Bloomberg uh, the other day, um, where they found that at least 9 million people uh, never actually got um, any unemployment insurance over this, the, the, the courses because of a variety of things, because the uh, system for delivering it is antiquated and, and, and Byzantine, because there's all these various rules in, in states uh, that, that basically make it, uh, depending on where you live, very, very difficult to get it. Um, and they've talked about in this, in this deal, you know, spending or paying for some of the spending by going to, um, to, to, to look at the integrity of the unemployment insurance system. You know, they talk about there's fraud mm. going on. Um, and so they're going to, you know, we will have to see what the details are, but they're going to, I guess, go after fraud now. Okay, sure. You can, you can say fraud is bad, but 
the, the reality is that you look at some real examples it, when, when governments go after fraud and whether it's unemployment or, or other welfare systems, uh, it's not necessarily that they're actually going after fraud. Um, it, they could be going after people who have screwed up something when they were writing their forms to apply for things. They could be going after people who, you know, made some other mistake or, or, or you know, accidentally, uh, you know, misrepresented something about their, their um, biography. Who knows? It can be many things. Uh, there was actually a, a uh, I can't remember which state it was, it might, have been, might have been Michigan, but they found that going after uh, uh, welfare fraud, they, they, they basically, uh, I think 70% of the people they went after were, were not fraudsters at all. It was completely just a, a mistaken identity. So that's, mm. you know, on top of everything that you guys have already covered, this 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 is an added layer of, of injustice um, that again is is not only uh, completely contrary to this all the stuff we hear about this is the return of of the, the federal government and people's lives making a positive difference that Biden is the new FDR slash LBJ slash Abraham Lincoln uh, all that stuff it's it's contrary to that but it's also economically it completely defeats the whole purpose of this whole thing which is to do a massive stimulus, do short-term, big amount of spending, uh, forget about the deficit for the short-term, and and uh, hope that that will bring back the economy in, the, in a big way. And, and all of that, I mean, if people aren't getting their unemployment, if, if actually unemployment is being taken out, and as well as that, people are having to pay all these user fees, uh, you know, again, it, it, it's just more money going into to finance, into completely unproductive parts of the economy that, that are then recycled into um, basically dominating people's lives uh, even more than they already do. Yeah. I find it, I find the argument that Trump did way better than expected in the November election uh, due to his passage of the cares act and this, you know, the, the, the checks in people's pockets um, you know, with his name on it and, and the expanded unemployment insurance, which was kind of historic uh, at least in recent history at the time, pretty persuasive. And it seemed like that maybe the Democrats could learn a thing or two of that just to, just on a purely self-interested I want to remain in power type of thing like if we do this like people will will uh will like us and and, and vote for us uh but it they're they're so captured ideologically and you know by interest that they that they, they I don't know if they I don't know if they understand that or not I mean I can never really tell but I wanted to ask you um because when you wrote this when you wrote your book um it was not it was not a given or not even it was not even likely it didn't seem that Biden was going to win the presidency, you know, the Democratic primary, let alone the presidency. Um, I remember thinking like, man, poor Bronco, like, like worked on this book, like work on a whole book about like some guy who's going to come, you know, he was going to come in like eighth in the Democratic primary, like after Iowa and New Hampshire, where he was just like absolute disaster. I was like, man, he's toast. I mean, maybe it won't be Bernie, but it's not going to be Biden. Uh, but then Biden won. Like, what? Were you? Ner- I've always wanted to ask you, like, were you nervous, or like, were you, or were you just like always confident? No, he's gonna, he's gonna pull it out. No, no, I was not confident at all. I mean, I was uh, sitting there going, "What am I really doing this for? Like, is this gonna <laughs> sell anything?" Because by the time this comes out, uh, he, he might, he, I mean, he might not even be alive uh, from some of the kind of uh, <laughs> stuff we saw on the on the campaign trails, eye uh, bleeding and everything. So, uh, yeah, there were many points where I was like, am I just, am I just completely wasting my time? I mean, in many ways though, I, I was okay with that outcome of, of Biden just losing and, and being forgotten in history because, you know, I, I had studied his, his career for the book and I was like, well, this is not 
a guy that you want uh, taking power at this particular time. Um, and so I, I was actually quite happy. One of the funniest things is that the book, I mean, it's, it's dark, it's dark, but, but it, it uh, officially launched the day before South Carolina. Uh, oh so, you know, I, mean, I, I don't know if my book has some sort of malign energy. I blame you. The world. Yeah. I mean, clearly, yeah. clearly. Um, yeah. And then he came roaring back and it was, you know, p- people said things to me like that, you know, they were like, Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, that, that, uh, this guy that you wrote this, this book about is, you know, it's, he seems to just be a non-entity now. Um, and, and kind of a joke. And I was like, are you kidding? No, I, I don't care. I mean, that's fine. I, I, I wrote so your, book. your political commitments are stronger than your, um, than your like self-interest in, in, you know, selling as many books as possible. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say okay. so. Well, that's I mean, good. It's like, mine or not. I would be like, come on, Biden, baby. Come on, baby. <laughs> My thing was, I want, the, I want the book to break even because I don't want anyone who invested money into it to, to help me, you know, write it. I don't right. want them to be screwed over. And and it did that. And so when that happened, I was like, oh, great. Okay. Now I, now I don't have to worry about that. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, what happened happened. And it's, it's, it's interesting. You know, you, you, we were talking about how um, for a while it, it seemed like maybe things were going to go in a different direction. Um, and, and, you know, it was for, for that first, I guess, whatever month or two when they were uh, trying to pass a stimulus and they ended up passing it on that party line vote via reconciliation, even though obviously there's massive flaws with that bill and it's very limited. It's just basically a temporary emergency uh, bill that, 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 uh, you know, the, the, the biggest things about it kind of expire uh, after a couple of years. Uh, nonetheless, it seemed like, huh, maybe, maybe this guy in this party has kind of turned over a new leaf and learned something. Maybe they are going to do things in a different direction. Um, and I think what's happened since then, I mean, I think, with the Democrats, you know, centrist Democrats like like uh, Chuck Schumer, um, I think they still are kind of there. I think they they realize they understand that the, the kind of case that people like us have been making for a while, which is that if you don't deliver for people, you're going to get punished electorally, um, and that's why they passed that stimulus bill. I think Biden, on the other hand, I think he passed that stimulus bill. I think the, uh, the, the, the job numbers for the first couple months that came out were quite underwhelming. The Republican mm. Party started attacking the extended unemployment insurance, uh, mm. you know, saying that basically it was keeping people out of work. And, I, you know, there's a variety of reasons why those job numbers were, were not good. To, if, if anything, to be honest, it's probably because they didn't go far enough. Um, I mean, people are still paying off a ton of debt. So, I mean, if you're paying mm. off all this debt, you know, medical or student loans or whatever, and you're not, again, spending it into actual productive parts of the economy. It's not really going to be that, that you're not going to get this massive uh, comeback that you're hoping for. But anyway, uh, I think when that happened, I mean, one of the things I found when researching Biden's career is that when he's attacked by the right, he runs away. He, he's not someone who is right. confident in defending you know, progressive or even liberal positions. He's, he's, sort of, he's a little more so now. He's... he's you know, done some things obviously with the, the Amazon um, union vote that other presidents didn't. So he's, you know, for, for Biden, I mean, right now, this is maybe the most progressive you're going to get out of him. Um, but I mean, for, for what we actually need, um, you know, I mean, climate change. I mean, th- this bill is meant to be the, maybe the last chance to do anything yeah. for years, maybe even the rest of the decade on climate change. And that's all been negotiated out. Um, but yeah. uh, I mean, I, I do want to say, uh, you know, I don't know if we're going to move on yet, but I think we should also talk about, 
some of the responses to this infrastructure deal because um, there is a reason to be a little more optimistic, uh, you know, and, and with progressive Democrats kind of putting their foot down on certain things. So it's not clear that this bipartisan deal is actually going to be the thing that passes. And we can talk about that a little more. I don't, I don't know where you guys want to mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, I would like to discuss that. Um, I didn't want my set my segment to go too long, so this is perfect. So, you know, we've heard from some of the progressive Democrats in the House, people like uh, Representative Jamal Bowman, that progressives are ready to withhold their vote as a block if they don't uh, get exactly uh, what they want in the you know infrastructure bill. Bernie Sanders uh, also says that he wants to ensure that. There's like a, I forget the wording he used, but uh, he seems to buy into this notion that there can be a separate bill that has everything that we actually want in it that can pass through reconciliation. I'm actually super skeptical of that, but progressives banding together and withholding their vote, I think could be a, uh, could be a productive strategy. What are your thoughts on that? Well, so right now, because everything is so narrow in both the Senate and the House, it, it does offer some opportunities for, for basically progressives to leverage uh, whatever votes they have to be able to get their way. And so you know, with this with this bipartisan deal, uh, Biden is kind of having to negotiate several different uh, interests and sides. He wants to get a bipartisan deal. He doesn't care what's in it as long as it's bipartisan. He can say, look, look, I managed to get people to agree. The system works, yada, yada, yada. That's what he wants. The Republicans uh, don't want big infrastructure spending. Uh, They don't want any big spending. They don't want the economy to get better because they would like to, uh, you know, get as much gains as possible in the midterms. Um, So they want to keep it as small and limited as possible. You've got centrist Democrats who are sort of, you know, whether it's ideological or, 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 you know, just sort of political strategy, doesn't really matter, but they are kind of trying to, uh, people like Sinema and and Mancha are trying to kind of appear centrist. Um, And then you've got progressive Democrats who want some really, uh, you know, clear and key uh, priorities in this bill, climate probably being the number one, but also things like childcare and, and, and universities and all that kind of thing. Um, and so to get this bipartisan deal passed, Biden, on the one hand, has to appeal, appease the, the centrists and the Republicans, which he's doing with this bipartisan deal. Um, but on the other hand, he also has to have every single uh, progressive Democrat on board as well, effectively. And so what he has had to do, because progressives have said, we are not going to vote for this unless uh, we get a vote first to advance the um, the reconciliation package, which is meant to be the, the actual infrastructure package. And so Biden has had to publicly say, um, I, you know, I'm not going to sign this bipartisan deal uh, on its own. It's not going to, it's a no go unless it is also done in tandem with reconciliation um and whether whether he really means that or not who the hell knows uh maybe he does maybe he doesn't but you, you can't you know the other thing you can if you look through biden's career you can't really trust a lot of things he says in public um but what that has done is now all these republicans who had signed on to the deal and, and who were hoping that you know this was the way that they were going to they were going to use biden's uh, uh, instinct for bipartisan deal making and compromise with with the right um, to basically narrow his agenda. Uh, now they're looking at you know the way that uh, progressives are pushing the, the reconciliation package, and they're going, "Well, hold on. Well, we're not going to if they're going to pass all this stuff that we didn't want anyway. Um, then why are we going to sign on to this deal that then also lets Biden kind of do a big 
event or a press conference where he announces, look at me, I managed to get a deal. I'm, I'm a really great president. We don't want to give him that one. And so now all these Republicans are starting to kind of um, mutiny uh, and, and are saying, no, we're not going to support this, this infrastructure deal. <laughs> um, so, you know, it, it, yeah. this, the bipartisan deal may not even end up happening. And what could happen entirely by, by accident or by, by a series of sort of various events, um, not, not planned, is, is that by doing this, the, the Republicans abandoned the deal um, which effectively looks really bad for them. They negotiated this deal, then they abandoned it. Um, and then the reconciliation package ends up going and the, and the bipartisan deal doesn't happen because of Republican intransigence, which would be interesting because, uh, you know, that, that sort of, to some extent happened um, when, when Biden was vice president. Obama would task him to, uh, to negotiate with Republicans, Tea Party Republicans, for how to cut the deficit. Um, and according to Bob Woodward's book, uh, which, you know, Woodward tends to exaggerate and stuff, but, you know, the, the kind of thrust of his <laughs> argument in, in, in the book is that Biden basically just gave Republicans whatever they wanted because he just wanted to get a deal. So he would just he would he would offer, you know, trillions and in, in, in cuts and, and all this stuff that that progressive Democrats that were in the bargaining table kind of were like, my God, what is he doing? Um, and the only reason that didn't happen is because of the intransigence of Tea Party Republicans who said, yeah, yeah we love these cuts, but what, what about this revenue raising? No, we don't want to have any taxes. And then they torpedoed. <laughs> so we, we could wow. be seeing a version 2.0 of that. I'm not saying that's going to happen. Um, it could be a lot worse than that. And actually this deal goes through and nothing happens in reconciliation. Um, I hope not. Um, but yeah, right now I think there's, there's reason to think that, that it's not quite settled and there is a more optimistic, uh, future possible. Um, although that still leaves us with a far smaller, uh, infrastructure package. Even the reconciliation one is not big enough for what the moment, what the, what the climate emergency demands. So, yeah. Can I just say real quick, um, your book was just, it was very useful for me to, I guess, predict things, right? Because you, you kind of have to look at who Biden is as a person, what motivated him throughout his political career. And so, like, it was hard, especially in the beginning of his administration, um, to not fall, like, victim to, like, some of the positive stuff that was going on. And he did present himself as someone who was um, against the uh, fear-mongering about the deficit, right? Mm-hmm. And then now with the infrastructure bill, all of a sudden he's back to, oh, we got We got to have pay fors. We got to have pay fors. He doesn't say he's worried about the deficit, but he's acting as if he is. And that's the important part of it. But um, Nando, why don't we switch gears to other Biden related issues? Well, I I, I want to ask you about, uh, you know, his foreign policy, which is, you know, as far as I can tell, is, is very similar to Trump's <laughs> um, and, and immigration. But but first, I would be remiss if I didn't let producer Kale play this video and see what well, we all react to it. Um, let's see. Producer, go ahead. There's a reason why it's been harder to get African-Americans initially to get vaccinated because they used to be an experiment on the Tuskegee Airmen and others. People have memories. People have long memories. It's awful hard as well to get Latinx vaccinated as well. Why? They're worried that they'll be vaccinated and deported. So look, from day one, something that Governor 
Cooper has been totally focused on is making sure we get as many people vaccinated, particularly people who don't have access to health care usually. The Tuskegee Airmen thing is, is you know, is just amazing. He just confused the, the Tuskegee Airmen with the, the, the syphilis experiment. But also just hearing him say the word Latinx, you know, like Biden's like the least woke guy in the universe. Um, and uh, but like he has to like he has to like cosplay as like as like a woke guy, you know, a little bit. Um, it's just I mean, that video just like summed up so so many so many Biden Bidenisms that I, I, I thought it was important to play it. It, it kind of reminded me when during the campaign as a way to uh, to appeal to young people, clearly someone in his team said to him, just say things like, I see you, I hear you. And so he would repeat that in like <laughs> every video that he appeared on. <laughs> that was a strategy for... <laughs> right. In, in addition to telling young people who are worried about drowning in student debt to like get over it and give me a break, right? Yeah, <laughs> I see you, I just don't care. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, well, what do you make of uh, what do you make of, of Biden's foreign policy in in these first few months? Um, you know, what's what are the big things that stand out? Uh, it's, it's been a real mixed bag. I mean, on the one hand, it's it's good that he uh, is is maintaining uh, the 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 deal that. Well, I mean, he delayed it, but maintaining Trump's deal to to get out of Afghanistan. So that's really good. Um, at, at the same time, I mean, I think the the thing with every good thing that Biden's done on foreign policy or domestic is whenever it happens, there's, there's like a caveat, you know, when you read a little bit past the details or you keep paying attention to the issue beyond that, uh, you, you, you know, you see that, Oh, okay. This hasn't actually gone quite as, as far as I hoped, or, or he hasn't really even done the thing that he said he was going to do on Afghanistan, for instance. Um, there, uh, there was actually a report in, uh, in New York magazine, um, about a month ago or so, uh, about this this big hiring spree for private military contractors uh, for Afghanistan, um, and so it, it certainly seems like sure the the troops are going to leave, but they may just be being replaced by by private mercenaries, um, and and uh, the administration has said uh, you know privately kind of off the record to, or, or anonymously to, to to papers that while we're going to keep drone striking and and doing special forces uh, strikes in Afghanistan, so you know I mean that's. Mm. It's a withdrawal in kind of the, the way that I guess most Americans think of it, but it's not really a, a proper withdrawal um, because if, if troops are still in there, I mean, if you're still bombing a country, if, if China was sending drones into the United States and, and, and bombing it, uh, you wouldn't be like, well, they're not, this isn't war. This is, uh, you know, this is just good, clean fun. No, I mean, obviously that those are, those are acts of wars. Um, so, so, okay. But that, that's a good thing. I mean, uh, at the same time, I mean, all of this has to be understood in, in the context of this pivot to to a new Cold War with China. So, you know, one of the things that that uh, was really good and actually earned some some rare praise for me uh, for Biden was um, I thought his some of his recent actions around um, Russia were actually quite good um, because contrary to, to the, the the common perception, Trump may have been very obsequious and, and, and flattering. Uh, to, to Putin uh, in person in his public rhetoric, but in what he actually did as president, he was pretty belligerent, uh, uh, alarmingly belligerent. Um, and and Biden's kind of the opposite, where he's been kind of talking tough and he's done some things, you know, sanctions and, and, and the like, uh, to, to, I guess, show that, that he's not going to be like Trump. 
but uh, he seems to be uh, moving in a direction of, of trying to tamp down tensions with Russia. We saw that at, at the summit the other week. Um, you know, the, the press was going all in and trying to extract uh, some sort of hawkish escalatory talking point from him. And he was basically saying, no, 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 it's fine. You know, they're, an, they're a competitor, they're an adversary, but, you know, we can work together, so on and so forth. Um, so I thought that was good. On the other hand, um, much like the Afghanistan thing, I mean, this also has to be understood as this part of this pivot towards China because they want, and Biden wants, uh, a conflict with China, um, uh, or at least, you know, competition. He wants a saber rattle against it. Uh, it, it makes no sense to be doing that, but then also antagonizing Russia um, because uh, Russia is a, a nuclear power. It, it um, has been kind of moving closer to China. Um, so if you want to isolate China, uh, you know, you, don't, you wouldn't want to antagonize Russia as, as well. You would want to, uh, you know, at, at the very least, if not have them on your side, at least have them, you know, not necessarily on China's side uh, if and when things uh, get heated. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, on other, other matters, uh, yeah, as you say, there hasn't been a massive, that, that massive break from, from Trumpism that people were expecting. I mean, it, it's the same old foreign policy as always. The, the U.S. Uh, supports uh, democracy movements and, and movements uh, and, and, and efforts to, to, to more democracy in, in countries where that serves its interest, where it serves its interest to support um, authoritarians, dictators, despots. It's doing that as well. I mean, we saw that with the with Saudi Arabia. Uh, Biden made a big show on the campaign trail that he was going to, you know, he, he was really going to hold Saudi Arabia to account uh, for for the Khashoggi killing. And uh, what did he actually do? He, he, I mean, he punished some of the senior leadership, but he kept the crown, uh, crown prince um, basically uh, unpunished because at the end of the day, he he wants to work with them uh, to fight terrorism. Um, and so, uh, and that's that's maybe the other thing. You know, I, I could go on and on and on, but I'll, I'll I'll maybe leave it here. I think the other part of it is that uh, the war on terror really shows no signs of of really um, de-escalating. Um, it's it's still going on, and I mean, frighteningly, what Biden's actually doing is he's he's bringing the war on terror home. Um, you know, supposedly against white supremacists and neo Nazis. I mean, I'm sure those people will be will be prosecuted as well. But I mean, uh, we we have already concrete cases uh, that we've seen where where leftists, anarchists, and the like have been kind of targeted, if not for prosecution, then for sort of surveillance um, in the wake of the uh, January sixth incident. So, um, yeah, I th- that's really that's really scary. Yeah, I thought it was interesting um, that Ken Klippenstein from The Intercept uh, obtained uh, some documents from the military indicating that, like, through their training materials, uh, they group in uh, socialism and Nazism as, uh, you know, extremist uh, ideologies. So it kind of gives you a sense of, you know, where both the military and the federal government is on the left in this country. Um, but I wanted to also just kind of ask you a follow-up on something you said, because I'm, I'm curious to learn the details about it. So you mentioned that Trump was actually far more belligerent toward Russia, and um, you're happy to see that Biden has kind of reversed that. I know that, you know, while his rhetoric seemed pretty friendly toward Russia, 
Trump was willing to implement sanctions and all of that other stuff. What other belligerent behavior are you referring to? Uh, well, he, you know, he was trying to block the, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline that, that Russia's trying to build um, to basically take uh, natural gas, to export its natural gas directly to, uh, to Europe. Um, and that's a big, uh, really, really important, uh, not just economic, but, but uh, geostrategic policy for, for Putin. Because uh, basically what that would do is it would, it would leapfrog um, or avoid going through Ukraine. I think right now it's a, a, like a, a large percentage of, of uh, Russia's natural gas has to go through Ukraine to get to to, to Central Europe um, and 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 further west. Um, and so this this kind of eliminates the need to do that. Um, and uh, it's it's a big thing. I mean, in terms of, of geo strategy, uh, NATO itself has has kind of warned its members of this effort. They said, you know, uh, what Russia is trying to do is it's trying to kind of cleave apart NATO and and cleave apart Europe um, by making uh, Western European countries like France and Germany and and some of those central European states more reliant on its gas. So, you know, we have to oppose this pipeline for that reason. Trump was really against it. Um, I think more for his own uh, economic vision of, of, you know, uh, turbocharging uh, American fossil fuel production, um, but nonetheless, he he was opposed to it, and and Biden has decided not to sanction um, the pipeline, so it's it's going to go ahead. I mean, you know, it, it still has a way to go before it gets uh, uh, built, but that's a that's a huge win for Putin. Um, another thing is that uh, Trump kind of talked about trying to you know negotiate certain deals with with Putin, but I mean, in reality, he he withdrew from a. a a whole heap of uh, arms control treaties, um, and Biden now, I mean, nothing, nothing concrete, but they did agree at that summit to to restart nuclear talks, um, which is critical. I mean, uh, nuclear war, the the, the shadow, or the 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 the, the uh, prospect of nuclear war has never gone away just because the Cold War is over. Uh, in many ways, it's it's more alarming now because with the end of the Cold War, you you don't have the the same infrastructure of communication and diplomacy that you used to have during the cold war when everyone was terrified that it was going to erupt at any moment into all out nuclear Holocaust, uh, that, that doesn't really so much exist anymore. And so, you know, it's, it could be very easy for miscommunication or, or, you know, a a, a sort of misreading of signs or even just the malfunction of, of systems to erupt into, you know, uh, into, into full scale war. That's nearly happened, you know, at least half a dozen times already uh, in our history. So getting that, that you know, return to some sort of maybe not friendly diplomatic relations with Russia, but at the very least to a point where uh, those countries can uh, at, at minimum avoid a full-scale nuclear confrontation and, and at, you know, I, I would say more hopefully actually cut their nuclear stockpiles with the, you know, a long-term goal of actually eventually getting rid of nuclear weapons entirely. Um, that's a really good thing. Again, it has to be seen whether that's going to happen, but, but there's, there's some encouraging signs and, and maybe this, this pivot to China is going to, you know, um, perhaps in some ways uh, 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 help that effort. Unfortunately though, then you've got the, the pivot to, to confrontation with China to worry about. So, you know, it's uh, a, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it never ends. Yeah. Yeah. 
No, yeah, I mean, even Trump's uh, support for the, you know, uh, Montenegro's admittance into into NATO uh, was, I mean, it's hard for us in the U.S. to to see it this way, but it's it's akin to like if Russia or China signed a military alliance with Nicaragua mm. or something, you know, like we would there would be an absolute meltdown um, here, you know, like that is that is like a direct kind of um, uh, affront to uh, to Russia's interests. Well, um, and, and and don't forget, right. Trump sent uh, weapons to Ukraine uh, for the, the conflict yeah. there, which which Obama refused to do quite sensibly because he understood that that was a major provocation and, and escalation. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, Trump was sort of ridiculed for a long time because they had, uh, the GOP had taken that out of their platform, sending weapons. And, you know, it was sort of, oh, look, Trump's countdown yeah. to Putin, yada, yada, yada. Um, but he ended up doing it. Um, and and Biden, so, you know, there was a report in the Washington Post that Biden actually pulled back. Uh, he was going to send aid and he decided not to in the end because Putin had also withdrawn some troops from the Ukraine border. Um, so, yeah, that's really important. Um, that, and that's a big, it seems to be a bit of a change from from the Trump administration. But it shows you, yeah. you know, this narrative about how Trump was, so friendly to Russia, um, this administration was, was kind of doing it was very weird. Mm-hmm. It was a very weird phenomenon of the last. Like you, it, it's funny because like you like you said, it's it's just completely opposite with Biden, in which he's like, I'm gonna tell that, I'm gonna give that Putin a piece of my mind, I'm gonna, <laughs> you know, like whatever. <laughs> and everyone's like, Yeah, look at him. Um, but uh, I I want to just uh, just to wrap it up because we're we're running out of time. I want to just uh, very quickly uh, just ask a. What what Biden's been up to on on immigration, um, you know, immigrant, Af- you know, immigration was just so central to, uh, I think, people's um, people's revulsion to Trump I mean, and also to his support, to be fair. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I think that the images of, you know, of, of kids in cages and all that stuff and, and Trump, you know, famously went down the escalator and said the Mexicans were rapists and all that stuff. Um, what what has um, what has Biden been up to on on immigration? Yeah, what's been interesting to me about this whole thing is that Trump's immigration policies were kind of uh, one of the chief reasons that people had this really um, kind of apocalyptic reaction to him. Um, and and mm-hmm. they were kind of cited probably, not, I mean, I would say climate change was the number one reason to, to you know, if you, want, if you want to vote against Trump. But people often cite his immigration policy that it was, it was fascistic and everything, which I don't disagree with. Um, but in the end, you know, Biden's immigration policy, it's definitely, it's definitely, better uh, from a, a humanistic standpoint than, than what Trump was doing. Um, but uh, it's, not, it's not that much different. I mean, you know, granted, they are, they are dealing with, with a crisis that, that, that Trump really um, uh, escalated and made worse, sure. But I mean, you know, for, for example, the public health order uh, that, that Trump um, put on in 2020 when coronavirus came out, that was at the time uh, called basically the height of racism. Because what Trump was saying was, you know, we're going to use the coronavirus, we're going to use the pandemic to, to basically close the southern border entirely. You can't even go to, you know, try and go for asylum. We're just going to kick you out if you come through the border and we're going to send you back to Mexico. Um, and that was, you know, people said, you know, this is this is fascism and racism in action. This is this is no public health justification, yada, 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 all of which I, I agree and I, I think is true. Um, but Biden's kept that in um, because it's, it's very useful for them. You know, they don't want to be seen as letting through um, 
thousands and thousands of migrants because I think they, they, they know they're going to get attacked uh, by the right. And so that, that public health order has been used for, you know, over the, over the course of uh, the last, what are we up to now, uh, during over the, the course of the last five months um, to just kick people out and, and basically stop people even from, from applying for asylum. Um, there was, there was a, a lot of praise given to Trump, uh, sorry, Biden getting rid of the uh, Freudian slip, uh, getting rid of the um, <laughs> Remain in Mexico policy, right? So when you when you apply for asylum, rather than doing it in the United States, because if if you're applying for asylum from somewhere because you're worried that you're going to uh, be murdered, uh, you don't want to stay in the place that your life is <laughs> under threat. Um, kind so of defeats usually, the purpose, yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, it's, and so he he kind of repealed it, but I mean, it's not really repealed i mean it, it, they, they've stopped doing it but basically what's happened with the public health order is you it, you effectively unless you're one of the, the lucky few they sort of have a little discretionary policy and they bring in i think a few hundred people um here and there but ultimately i mean that basically just means you you uh whether you're applying for asylum or whatever you are just stuck in mexico and people have been you know, all the stuff that 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 we always hear about you know the, the horror that's happening in Central America, the kidnappings, murder, rape, all that stuff, burglaries. Um, that's all happening to these people um, who are forced to stay in Mexico um, right now without, without any really other recourse. Um, you know, on the other hand, I mean, some of the stuff that's been repealed, the public charge rule, obviously, uh, that's a big one that basically said, you know, it, it made it very hard to for you to be able to get, you know, um, residency and citizenship uh, if you had uh, ever used a, a basically relied on government welfare, relied on government benefits at any point. Um, so Biden got rid of that. Um, and obviously, you know, things like the Muslim ban and, and, and all that. Uh, I mean, low-hanging fruit, obviously, it's just a no-brainer that you get rid of that. But, I mean, it's, it's a good thing, I guess. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the, those big flagship items that got all the press, yeah, that's, that's, that's real fine. But then you've still got all these... Um, you know, maybe a little more obscure uh, things that Trump was doing that, that Biden hasn't completely gone rid of. Supposedly, they're going to do it over time. Um, you know, it's just in this period that they're sort of doing that. But I mean, A, I mean, you know, if you condemn Trump for doing it, then you, you can't just say, well, it's fine if Biden does it. Um, and then secondly, I mean, it remains to be seen whether that is temporary. Uh, th- that's what you always hear with any sort of program like this that's that's incredibly controversial and 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 brutal towards people is that you know this is just temporary it's only going to be here for a bit and then what ends up happening is it it slowly gets kind of um institutionalized so yeah it remains to be seen uh what happens with that yeah all right bronco thank you so much for taking the time um to speak with us today everyone go check out his book you will not regret it it's titled yesterday's man the case against joe biden it'll help you understand a lot of what's going on right now um bronco thank you again yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, all the way from New Zealand. I don't even know what time it is over there. Like, what day is it? It might even be a different day over there. Um, yeah. No, he, he's in L.A. now. He's uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Nice. He's right here. We could have had him. We could have had him uh, in studio. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, we're, this is our studio. This is yeah, you're looking at. Well, there you go. Amazing. <laughs> we can have him. You can have him over at your place. Do you want? We could just like, hang out. Drinks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll just hang out. Yeah. Oh, I'm getting um, word that he's not in California. He's in, uh, or no, he's in Nevada. Nevada. City. I don't know where this is. He's he's near you, but not near me. America. America is one of the few countries where like 
you know, I, it, Nevada City, you would think it's in Nevada, but it might not be. You know, like Kansas City is right. not, not in Kansas, you know, like. Don't uh, know where Nevada is. It might so, be upstate New York. I'm not really Yeah, sure. it could be like, yeah, in Florida. Um, <laughs> but um, no, that was that was amazing. Uh, Bronco, just like unbelievable command of all, all the all the issues, just like a complete overview of the American political scene um, from a bird's eye view. I, I, I found that to be very, very helpful. Um, so, yeah, great stuff. Also, yeah. cool accent, you know. Definitely. Yeah, always helps. Always should, helps. Should, yeah, you should be reading his work whenever it comes out. He's just like, yeah. he, he usually is going to have like just really good left common sense on these things. Yeah. Um, but I'm here uh, after the interview now because we're going to do, we're going to spend the next couple of minutes just doing a couple of super chats. Uh, so yeah. if you have a question for any of us, uh, feel free to send it in through the YouTube live chat uh, or on, well, I don't know if you can, no, I think it's just YouTube. Um, and, uh, we'll try to get to some of them. Um, just want to say that there was a couple super chats earlier. J L Sands that said, thank you. Thank you back. Uh, J Manuel, another J said, awesome job, Anna and Anna, great guest too. Thank you, J other J. Thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, there was, um, uh, a comment earlier by user Prairie fire who said, uh, in regards to, um, uh, the term uh, asset recycling, that the term mm. itself sounds correct, uh, that late stage capitalism lacks innovation. So you destroy an existing industry and bring it back to pre-regulated start, like how Uber is an unregulated taxi service. Um, yeah, yeah I, I think yeah. it's a astute comment. Um, and that's like, that's also why, you know, the some of the biggest, most powerful uh capitalists in the country right now are asset managers that they're there to help facilitate in this process of just kind of um like vultures coming in and picking apart uh you know uh, what's left of some of these companies um you know i I wanted to just yeah i wanted to bring something up real quick because it's been on my mind a lot and and i i don't want to say anything prematurely because clearly this just happened and we don't have um too many details about why the condo building in Miami partially collapsed. Um, Mm. There are some stories indicating that uh, three years ago, there was a study on the building and they found that it had severe structural issues as uh, recently, or as far back, I should say, as the 1990s. um, They found that the building was sinking at Mm. a, a shockingly fast rate Um, and they didn't do anything about that. Right. So the reason why I bring that up is because regulations obviously matter when it comes to building, um, these structures, building infrastructure, there are codes and regulations for a reason. And when Chris Cuomo was covering that story yesterday, he just kept repeating over and over again, this doesn't happen in America. This doesn't happen in America. This doesn't happen in America. It happened in Miami, like, like five years ago, a bridge collapsed and killed a bunch of people. Like in the same freaking city. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, So it does happen in America. But I would argue that with privatizing our infrastructure, it's going to happen more often, right? Because, Mm -hmm. again, it's not just that they're going to privatize it and you have these private companies that have a profit motive. What do companies do in response to regulations they don't like that hinder their profits, um, they lobby to repeal regulations. And I think yeah. that that's coming, you know, it's just something that I'm really, I'm really worried about. 
Of course. Well, and also so much of our public infrastructure in this country was built between the years of 1933 and 1945. Like it's, we are just living in the legacy of the New Deal and we don't, like it's not recognized as such because there's been such a concerted effort to strip apart the the New Deal legacy. Uh, but that's like so many of our public parks, public infrastructure, roads, bridges, water uh, systems, um, waste plant systems. Um, so much of that came through the New Deal. Uh, that mm-hmm. it's almost it's like staring us in the face of like that's when we did it the first time, and maybe we're going to need to do something very similar to do it again. Uh, like it's the, the political solution is kind of built into that very obvious fact, but, Mm. um, but I know you guys all agree with that. Uh, okay. So a bunch of questions coming in. Uh, We'll try to get to some of them. Um, uh, God, there's, there's one of them on Gramsci and I don't know if we're going to, I'll, let me come back to Gramsci. I'll I'll take Gramsci in a sec. Um, Patrick, Patrick said, enjoyed this excellent show while smoking a chicken solidarity with Anna, I'm moving the show. So she, oh, she hey. wants, yeah. Okay. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to take over this joy. We're going to, we're going to, yep. 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 Yeah. I yeah. love the show. You will not, why I do you it. will not tie us down. Yeah. yeah. No, I love the show, which is why like, yes, it's tough doing it on a Saturday morning. Someone suggested doing like Saturday afternoons. No, no, like, no. No Saturdays, like no, no Saturdays, no. no Sundays. Let's find a way to do it like on a Friday. Um, but I love doing you, it, which is why we're here. There will be things in the future you'll see and everyone will be happy, I promise. We'll all be happy. Yes. You, the audience, will be happy. <laughs> we're, we're, we're figuring it out. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, here's another question um, asking, uh, mm. hello, somebody. Just wanted, just watched Nina Turner. Uh, she had a 2IT town hall. Um uh, and I'm sure you're familiar, maybe not. Um, I know Nina was Bernie's co-chair, but as far as I know, she doesn't generally self-identify as socialist. Is it important to try to get allies to use socialist as a label or to refer to what they're doing as socialism? Um, I, I've i gone back and forth on this a lot. Um, I, uh, you know, I think that I... I, I I, I do think that there is a cost that there must be, there has to be a political cost still, um, you know, that, that Bernie kind of the socialism thing um, probably cost him votes. I, I just, I don't think that there's any way around it in some way um, on some level, but um, on another level, I mean, you, you have to, you have to get people to change, to think of an alternative to, to capitalism. I mean, it's so hegemonic that you just have mm-hmm. to figure out a way to get people to think an alternative. So, you know, sort of a, 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 um, a surrender on the front end seems wrong. I mean, I, I saw the video that everyone shared of India Walton, who became the, or is going to become the mayor of, of Buffalo, um, kind of responding to, to that question. Um, I thought very effectively, um, and um, and and I think that in anything in life, you know, if they're going to call you that anyway, and you are that, um, backing away from it or hiding from it just makes you look weak, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that voters also kind of respond to that feeling, like, I, you know, I, I find the argument persuasive that Andrew, like the Andrew Yang, kind of his his uh, candidacy kind of started collapsing in New York when he started kind of seeming to whiffle waffle on a bunch of stuff, you know, whether like, even if the thing that he's saying is like unpopular or, or whatever, like voters on some level respect, like a, 
like a, a guy who just kind of sticks to his guns on some level, mm-hmm. you know? Um, totally. And, and being seen as a waffler is like the worst thing you can do. I mean, there's people that who are wafflers who are very effective at not seeming like wafflers, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, that, that they, they can, they can move with the political winds in a way, in a way that makes them seem authentic all the time. But I, I, I do think that, at the end of the day, you know, there's probably a short-term political cost, but in the long term or even medium term, you know, you have to start th- getting people to think of an alternative to to capitalism. You know that 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 capitalism is the the root of all our problems, and that you if you do, if you don't articulate a an alternative, you're you're just going to be stuck in the in the hamster wheel. Yeah, I want to add to that because I think you're right. And um, just this morning, a friend of mine sent me a link to an Axios article that says just half of younger Americans now hold a positive mm-hmm. view of capitalism and socialism's appeal in the United States continues to grow, driven by black Americans and women. So I think that it is important to not only identify unapologetically as a socialist if the candidate is a socialist, right? But also to, you know, through campaigning um, for the left media, obviously through its programming, to specifically call out the capitalist system for why certain things are the way they are. Like, I've, I've gotten a lot better with that and a lot less, I guess, afraid to specifically name capitalism and, and you know, why certain things are happening when I'm doing the show, um, TYT specifically. So like the electric grid in Texas, right? Um, the privatized, deregulated model, the capitalistic model is what leads to uh, these private companies refusing to weatherize their equipment, right? They don't want to spend money on that. They want to maximize their profit. So like, I think all of that is important. So people are just kind of crystal clear in their minds about why things are the way they are and how there is an alternative solution. Yeah, I, I agree with both of you. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and and I think I think I'm I, I definitely agree with the stressing like the you know anti capitalism in the sense that capitalism is a real thing that we're attacking. It's not just like a, you know, this, this phantom that we're punching at. It's like, we can actually identify what it is and when it's like, when its mechanisms are at play. I would just add, um, I think when it comes to allies, for instance, uh, you know, if someone is a socialist, they should feel fine identifying as a socialist for the reasons that Nando stated that like people don't like politicians that seem like they're hiding something. Um, They seem disingenuous and it's, it's going to hurt you. Um, at the same time, there's some people that, you know, there might be just like some good labor candidates, uh, people that have, you know, their primary support is coming from uh, unions uh, that are maybe somewhat uncomfortable with the label uh, socialist. Uh, and I still think that we should do our best to make uh, good alliances with those people and see that, you know, for most of the important aspects of, of our program and their program, we're in alignment and we should move forward on those things um, that I think using socialism and social and using the label socialist is useful when you can use it. And, but we also shouldn't make it too hard of a litmus test that we end up uh, courting ourselves out of good allies that we should be, uh, you know, much like closer to because they actually represent um, constituencies that, uh, you know, that we want as a part of our broader political project that would benefit greatly from, totally. from what we're doing. Um, 
So not at all. Contrary yeah, I'm thinking of. Saying, but. I'm thinking of the young socialists that flocked to Ed Markey to stave off uh, that awful Kennedy guy with you know who like drools and 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 you know is probably <laughs> like just yeah. Um, that's an example of of what you're talking about. Like you you don't like. I mean, Ed Markey's not a socialist or any, by any stretch of the imagination, but like it was a tactical uh, choice that I think mm-hmm. was uh, uh, effective. Yeah. I'll just say one thing on the Gramsci question and then we're going to go because <laughs> some is LJ had asked us earlier, um, our thoughts on Gramsci's common sense, good sense and the process of intellectuals is applied to the fabric of leftist solidarity. Um, this is like super fucking niche. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, Wait, I should, I should do this way. I think it's Kelly Yappin. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm like, I think, I think, go ahead, go ahead. Go I think ahead. the, the away, people need to know this is okay. important. Well, no, I just think that I think I'm, I'm going to be really simple on this because I think Gramsci's one of these people that gets uh, adopted by all different people with all different political orientations that he's he, like Pete Buttigieg's dad. Yeah. Well, his dad actually probably was a Marxist. Um, same thing with uh, Kamal Harris's dad, Donald Harris, who's like a very important uh, uh, Marxist economist. Um, but you know, in addition uh, to that, and just another super chat. Thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it's, I mean, the thing with Gramsci is just that, you know, um, so much of what he wrote is, is very kind of muddled because of the circumstances that he wrote it in. He wrote it in a prison. And so it was very easy for um, people that were much more on the right to, to adopt him. Um, I think at the end of the day, like his politics are actually just, he's just kind of a Leninist. Um, and like, he thinks, left left progress occurs through uh through a party um and so i think to your question specifically he would probably be advocating for greater left discipline um and but the means that you have that is through the party what what he refers to as the modern prince that's like his code word for like the communist party um in italy so uh but that's but ultimately this is why i'm addressing this question which is just ultimately like the left today post bernie still lacks uh certain intellectual or not just I am institutional um, organizations and, and mechanisms that can effectively kind of keep people on the left focused on those things that matter, right? That if we had a labor party or a socialist party or something similar that could be pushing for our political agenda, it would be easier for us to say, oh yeah, obviously we're trying to win this particular milestone or this particular election that, you know, we have a greater sense of what we're doing and we understand that like we should be trying to um, facilitate in the party's success uh, and vice and that the party should also be responsive to the people that, you know, it goes both ways. Um, but uh, I think ultimately that's, you know, you don't have to read Gramsci to, to get to that conclusion that like lack of like having lack of, um, of institutions or parties of the left uh, I think is is one of the primary reasons why uh, things are a little scattered post Bernie, um, and that's why we need to be so focused on building those kinds of institutions. Uh, and, um, and there's no shortcuts to that. It's, it's just it's hard work. No shortcuts, baby. So more discipline. We definitely need more discipline. Um, Jacobin uh, David uh, David Broder, I want to say, uh, just recently translated a never before read uh gramsci article uh in english uh for the first time so check it out on the jacobin website um i have not read it yet i have it saved on my instapaper and i will read it probably sunday afternoon yeah, um 
So, yeah. Uh, well, thanks for the super chat. There's a couple others I think I missed, but um, we're out of time and we will, we appreciate you asking us these questions and we will get back to them next week. So I'm going to bounce, but thanks everyone. Thanks, Anna and Nando. Thanks. Thanks. Raja, and uh, have a good weekend. All right, everyone, please um, share this stream, um, share it with your yeah, friends, share it with your family and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Subscribe to the magazine if you haven't already. And thank you for supporting us and making this programming possible. Nando, any final words? Um, no, just thank you to Bronco. Thank you to everyone who watched. Um, you know, I'm excited to see what the week brings to us and prepare for a new show on Saturday, next Saturday. The shows never stop. They never stop. And we love doing it. Um, thank you, everyone. Have an awesome weekend. We'll see you next week. Thank you.